there is a proportional relationship between the frequency with which we use a word and our valuation of it. For instance, take the word love. Few words are more common in our vocabulary, and yet do we really understand what that word means, and therefore whether we are indeed loved or know how to love? Evidently not, for Paul in our passage uh, this morning is spending time convincing us of its truth, the truth that God loves us. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, are a distinct section of Paul's letter to the Romans. They are structured around what is called a chiasm, that is, an X-shaped structure, a bit like the X-wing fighters in Star Wars. Introduced by peace, and then concluding with reconciliation, same idea, different word. And at the heart of the passage are the phrases in front of us this morning. We're looking at verse 6, and right in the center runs from verse 6 through to verse 8, which are all about the love of God. Now, Romans 5 to chapter 8 is Paul's way of showing us that Because we are justified by faith, we have been declared right by God through trusting in Jesus, we can have absolute certainty about our relationship to God if if we have repented of our sins and put our trust in Jesus. If that is the case, Paul says, therefore we have peace with God. We stand with God assured of our relationship to Him in a realm of grace in the courts of the heavenly King. And therefore we rejoice. We rejoice in this hope. Our eternal destiny is secure. And as we saw last week, in the heart of the Christian, there is an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit constantly, more and more assuring us, convincing us, flooding us with His love. Now, this work of the Holy Spirit is important for us to emphasize if we are Bible people, as we are at uh, College Church, we should never put the Word at conflict with the Spirit. As one of our pastoral residents said to us this week at the staff meeting, all Word and no Spirit dry up. All Spirit and no Word blow up. Word and Spirit grow up. 
But you and I all live in a reality where the idea that God loves us seems so counterintuitive. I was talking to someone just this week who has various rather profound difficulties in their personal life. This person is a Christian. And I asked myself, in what sense is it going to be easy for this person to believe that God loves them? And of course, it is not easy at all. So Paul then follows on from his teaching about the work of the Holy Spirit, moving in our hearts to flood us with his love. He follows on from that by grounding that teaching in something that is meant to persuade us of the truth that God loves his Christian people even when they don't feel it. even when reality around them does not seem to suggest it. And so Paul writes like this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now what I believe Paul is saying here is the following. We realize how much God loves us right now when we conceptualize, we let it penetrate our thinking and our, into our hearts, when we conceptualize how much He loved us right then, and that will change our lives. In other words, this teaching is intended to help us realize the love of God and so be transformed by that love. Let me say again what I believe Paul's saying here. This is my thesis this morning. We realize how much God loves us right now when we conceptualize how much He loved us right then, and that will change our lives. Now, to show you that that is what this passage is saying, I will first define love, for we so often misunderstand what the Bible means by love today. Then I'll explain how this passage shows us the impact of conceptualizing how much He loved us right then by what it says about who we are and what it says about what He did. So first definition, then who we are then what He did, all to show that we will realize how much God loves us right now when we conceptualize how much He loved us right then, and that will change our lives. First definition. What do we mean by the word love? I will define it by what it is not. Two aspects need to be made clear. We need to make sure that we realize the love of God is not something that we can take for granted. So many people do today. They say God loves you and they think that is something they can take for granted. We need to realize that is not the case. And we need to make sure we understand the love of God is not passivity. 
So we will not realize how much God loves us if we define love as something that we can take for granted. Let me put that like this. If we take the love of God for granted, we will actually miss the love of God only available for the grateful. You see, my friends, the love of God is something so unexpected, so extraordinary, I wonder if it does not shock us whether we are conceptualizing it right. More on this when we consider what this passage says about who we are and what he did. But as we define love, we must, to begin with, define it as something we cannot take for granted. Otherwise, we'll miss out on the love of God which is only available for the grateful. We also need to define it as something which is not passivity. So when we say love today, we very often mean what I call passivity, that is live and let live, letting others do what they want as long as what they do does not harm us. That, we think, is love. But when the Bible talks about love, it is not thinking of passivity but passion. Of course, that word has reference to the cross, as we will find out. Now, having defined love by what it is not, we can see how Paul describes what it is when he describes who we are and what he did. This verse then uses two words to describe who we are, and they're not very flattering words, weak and ungodly. When Paul says we're weak, he sometimes means it in a positive sense, of course, admitting that we need other people not being proud. But here he means weak as in morally weak. He means that we are the kind of people who cannot even do what we think we should do. I was reminded of that uh, line from J.R. Tolkien's great book, Lord of the Rings, and the movie of those books. In one moment, the elf lord is trying to be persuaded that men can be the solution to the problems of Middle-earth, and the elf lord simply says, men are weak. Paul has in mind our tendency to know what the right thing is to do, but not to actually do it. We are weak, he says. Then he says, we are ungodly. This refers back to the word that he used at the start of Romans in chapter 1, verse 18. He said there that because of all the ungodliness, God's wrath is being revealed. And so this word then is to remind us of Paul's argument in Romans so far. Chapters 1 to 4 are to prove that we can only be made right before God by faith in Jesus. No other way is available to us because of our ungodliness. That is, we all break God's law. We all do wrong. It's not just that we all make mistakes, but that we have all sinned against the holy God, and therefore we are, Paul says, under his just condemnation. Paul's argument has been that this is true of absolutely everyone. It is true of the religious and the unreligious. And if we think this is not true of us, then it probably shows it is more true of us, for we have embraced the mother of all sins, pride. Now, Paul uses this word ungodly to reference all that long conversation he has had to say that this is the human condition. 
This is his diagnosis of what is wrong with the world. And we need to realize it. Not only are we weak, we are also ungodly. That is, we do things that are not what God wants. We are not living up to the image of God that is invested in us. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, you will say, why spend so much time telling us how wicked we are if your aim is to tell us how much we are loved? And, of course, that goes to show how far removed is our current understanding of love from the Bible's understanding of God's love. I'm uh, reminded of uh, one um, former Muslim that I got to know who had become a Christian and was a very effective evangelist among his fellow Muslims. And because uh, he and his friends were seeing so many people come to Christ, those of us who were missionaries in that country wanted to find out what their technique was, a very Western question. What's your technique? And we were speaking through a translator, and once what we were asking had been translated, the man came back to us using the same word as it appeared in English, explaining this. Our technique is as following. We tell people that they are sinners until they believe it. It was until they believe it that struck me. And then we tell them that Jesus died for sinners. I thought to myself, I think I've heard of this technique before. If we take God's love for granted, we will never have the love that is only available for the repentant, which comes from profound gratitude. You see, next comes what God did, and when we understand it in this light, it is shocking. Paul says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is an amazing thought. Christ did not die for the good. Of course, uh, those of us who know our Bibles will be reminded of Jesus' story, the Pharisee and the tax collector, both praying, and the Pharisee who thought he was justified before God because he lived such an apparently good life, but was not justified. It was the repentant man who was. Pharisee was trying to prove his own value for being loved by God, but that will never work. For the truth is that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are weak and we are ungodly. That is who we are. And we will not realize how much God loves us if we stay just focused on how good we are, for we are not good and we do not deserve love. This is so against what is the common philosophy of our day. We need to let it sink in as a church. The way to know that God loves us is not to start by trying to love ourselves. Now, of course, there is a certain psychological health to having a positive self-image and all of that. But the trouble is we all have things about ourselves that uh, we do not love. And so what is the answer to that? Well, we can try to forget them. That is one current uh, popular idea. Just forget 
those things. We can try to convince ourselves that they don't matter or that other people are not so uh, good as we are and other people are worse. Or most popular today, we can surround ourselves with other people who will affirm that we are very nice after all. And of course, all that does is we fall into the trap of what the Bible calls the fear of man and what current psychology calls codependence. In the end, none of it will work. Why? Because we live in our own skin. And who we are is constantly before us. So how do we know that God loves us? Well, it all comes down to what God has done. We will realize how much God loves us right now when we conceptualize how much He loved us right then. In other words, we need to stare at these words and in particular stare at the cross. To gaze at the wounds of Jesus. To meditate upon these words and the truth of the cross. To study it in our small groups and as a church. For at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I want you to notice as we stare at this, the emphasis is not on Jesus' life. (laughs) Paul does not here talk about Jesus' miracles or his teaching. Not because those things are unimportant, but because they will not persuade us of his love for us. In fact, in the original, to emphasize this, each of the sentences in verses 6 to 8 ends with the verb die. Die. Paul is completely and utterly focused on Jesus' death. He wants us to stare at the cross. Now, of course, when we say the cross, we mean the empty cross. Jesus died and rose again. So this is not morbid. Certain religious traditions make the cross uh, almost negative. And if you come from that kind of background, you will say, how can you possibly find at the cross a reason for joy or a source of being persuaded that I am loved? Surely the cross is where we see our sins and we mourn for them there. Well, there is that. Paul has already said in chapter 3 that at the cross is where we see God's justice. But here, he is telling us, it is also where we see God's love. So this is not morose. This is not a funeral. He died, but he rose again. This is the power of God to show us how much he loves us. In fact, certain scholars think that Paul has in mind here, as bringing in the shock factor, He has in mind here certain well-known national heroes at the time who had given up their lives for the country in the uh, movement of what was known as the Maccabees. It's possible. We certainly do have heroes today of people who have died for their country or given their lives for their country. The Lincoln Memorial, savior figures of our country. But Paul here makes it shocking Jesus did not die for the good people. He died for the bad. We're not as bad as we could be, but we certainly are bad. 
And yet God in Christ died for us. And it seems to me that our appreciation of the love of God will only extend as far as we are willing to admit we are sinful and at the same time accept Christ's death as sufficient. It will expand that far. You see, the phrase at the right time emphasizes this. Paul is saying not just that the time was right in human history, though he may well be saying that. Not just the time was right in God's salvation plan, though he had uh, known us from the creation, before the creation of the world, and Paul may well be indicating that as well. But Paul is underlining that it was at the very time, the very moment when we were bad, then God loved us by dying for us. This This is powerful. Think of it like this. Think of the thing that you are most ashamed of. Perhaps you slept with a woman or man before you were married, and it haunts you to this day. Perhaps uh, you were in a war and you killed someone. You know it's part of the job, but this killing was something you actually enjoyed, and you cannot get rid of the idea that God cannot forgive that. Perhaps you cheated on your spouse. Perhaps you're at the top of your career because you kicked down some other people behind you and the bodies are beneath you now. Perhaps you're ashamed of your tongue. You keep on saying gossipy things. You wish you did not, but you do. Perhaps you're mortified by your greed. Perhaps it's an eating habit. You cannot stop eating. Perhaps it's something that happened to you. Perhaps that you consented to in a moment of weakness. Now you regret. Perhaps it's a choice that you made that seems to have affected the trajectory of your life and now you're not sure how it's all going to fit together and turn out for the best. So think of the thing, that thing, that thing that most means to you that you are weak, that you are ungodly, and Paul is saying, right then Christ died for you. This is why I am a Christian. No other faith, philosophy, ideology, has this message, only the Bible. And so when we come in a moment to the Lord's table, we will not be coming to something that is reenacting literally the death of Jesus. That has happened and is done with, and he rose again, and his death is sufficient. We are reminding ourselves of this truth and this verse right then, at that moment, he died for us. We realize how much God loves us right now when we conceptualize how much He loved us right then, and that will change our lives. Let me conclude by answering two objections and leaving us with one story that illustrates the change that this truth brings. First objection. Surely this means that we can do whatever we like. Well, this was exactly the objection that Paul faced 
and that he answers in chapter 6 and 7. In summary, his answer is no, it does not mean we can do whatever we like because a real Christian is in Christ. They are spiritually connected to him and so now want to please him. Second objection. If this does not mean we can do whatever we like, does it not at least create lazy, ineffective, unproductive Christians? And the answer to that is very far from it. In fact, I think a strong case can be made that the most effective followers of Jesus down through history have had the greatest personal awareness of God's love for them. Certainly, I think, true of Augustine and also Luther and probably Spurgeon, and many others. Why is that? It's because those who have been so loved, love in return. It is transformative. I pray it will be in your life this morning. Finally, a story to make the point that uh, when we realize how much God loves us right now, we can do it by conceptualizing how much he loved us right then, and that will change our lives. A story to make that point. Often we quote from someone well-known, like last week when I quoted from the account of Sarah Edwards during the Great Awakening, but this week I'll mention someone not famous, this time during the Great Welsh Revival. This is the account that I will elaborate somewhat. Uh, Joseph Jenkins was a spiritual man serving as a pastor of a struggling church in uh, Newquay in uh, Wales at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, to uh, battle the issues that he was facing, he began a young people's meeting, and he figured that perhaps he could give some fire to the youth. At first, the response was less than promising, but following an evening service in January 1904, a shy girl, as uh, the historians described her, called Florrie Evans, gave her life to Jesus Christ. Next week, uh, the pastor asked for testimonies. I guess it was a small church, and they could do that kind of thing. And then he posed the question, what does Jesus mean to you? There was a silence. And then finally, uh, Florrie Evans, Miss Evans, spoke in a trembling voice of the transformative power of realizing after she repented from her sins and put her trust in Jesus, realizing that, the change it had made in her life. She said this, If no one else will, then I must say that I do love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. And the historian that I read said, this had the effect of a lightning strike of the Spirit in the congregation. We will realize how much God loves us right now when we conceptualize how much He loved us right then. And that will change our lives, our churches, and the world around. Let us pray.
Our Lord Jesus, we stare at your death on the cross. Amazing love. How could it be? We pray that you would help us to see understand, conceptualize, have penetrate our hearts what you did. Lord, we suspect it begins by recognizing who we are. Help us to be honest about that. And so as we look at this world around us with all suffering, as we look at our own lives with its confusion, we pray that we would actually this morning be so assured of your love for us if we repent and believe. that our love for you in return would be with all our heart. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.